Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. It is August 19th, 2020. With me today is Dr. Danielle Ofri. Dr. Ofri is a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University of School of Medicine and has been a practicing physician for over two decades at Bellevue Hospital. Bellevue Hospital is one of our largest public health hospitals in the United States. Another part of Dr. Ofri's incredible career is being a writer, holding and being the witness to the practice of medicine. In her writing, she demystifies the role of the doctor, the power of the patient, and the corporate structures that can get in their way of healing. Her books are a reflection of her advocacy. What patients hear, what doctors say. Another book is called Doctors Feel. And her most recent book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. Dr. Ofri, it's such a great honor to have you as a guest on Healthcare Untold. Uh, Welcome. And how are you doing today, Dr. Ofri? Good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's a great honor. And uh, first and foremost, I just want to thank you on behalf of Healthcare Untold. And I know that thousands of people in uh, your area for your service at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, You know, Bellevue um, is the largest public health hospital we have in the United States. And so, um, you know, public health hospitals are so important uh, to our country. And so thank you for your service. Well, thank you. And it, it's, it was a huge team effort, and it always is, and it remains to be. Um, the staff at Bellevue and all the public hospitals are just amazing, and it's uh, just an absolute privilege to be part of that. Well, it's an, it's an area of care that I think we need to more focus for the future, and you know, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the future of healthcare after and during this pandemic. But I wanted to start by asking you how you came to be a physician and a writer, or were you a writer before you became a physician? Uh, well, you know, when I was in first grade, I loved writing little stories about my dog, um, <laughs> and but I, and I always wanted to be a veterinarian. And but then when I got to high school, it seemed like if you liked science, you were going to be a doctor. Not that I knew what it, exactly doctors did. My family, my parents are both teachers, um, but I followed the crowd. And then when I got to college, I ended up going to school in Canada. And in a very British-style system where it was 100% science. And there, if you like science, you were going to be a researcher. I had never thought of that. So I thought, okay, I'll do both. And I did an MD-PhD program at, back at NYU. And so I spent years in a lab and years training. And But when I did my medicine internship, I really fell in love with the patient stories. I, I just found them endlessly fascinating. And so I stayed in clinical medicine. And I trained during... And I trained during the time of the AIDS epidemic, which was very intense, somewhat akin to the COVID uh, pandemic now. And I remember thinking, I should write these stories down. They're so singular, but, you know, nobody had time and it was probably too close to the emotional bone. So after I finished my training, I took off a year and a half and I spent some time traveling. I did a little uh, travel medicine in various places. And that's when I began to write down the stories now that I had time. And I wasn't planning to become a writer or write a book, but I just, I wanted to put them somewhere. And then eventually they found their way together to become a a book, but that hadn't been the actual plan to begin with. Well, I tell you, um, I really appreciate your writing. And um, I wanted to talk to to you about your most recent book, When We Do Harm, 
a doctor confronts medical error. And it was an incredible read, uh, Dr. Ofri, and uh, really looks at the healthcare delivery system as a whole and also how to improve our healthcare systems, unfortunately, through the lenses of medical errors, but most importantly, through patient safety. So share with us um, about your book and what you would like to highlight to our listening audience. Oh boy, there's a, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll just start with the idea. We think about you know medical error. You know the surgeon cutting off the wrong leg and and those kind of obvious errors. And, and that a bit of that happens. It's actually probably rarer than we think. But it's really the larger um, sort of tent of, of preventing harms to patients, whether they're an error or not. For example, if a patient gets a CAT scan and has a reaction to the dye and goes into re- into kidney failure. It wasn't a mistake necessarily, but it's certainly a bad outcome for the patient. So looking at the sort of broader issue of patient harm and the flip side is patient safety, making it safer for all things, even things that aren't errors. Uh, the second point I, I want to bring up is we often hear about, well, let's have zero medical errors and we'll eliminate all medical harms. And while it sounds so appealing, uh, anytime we uh, try to achieve 100% compliance on anything, we'll probably end up with faulty data. Because we're human, we're not going to be perfect. So I think to be more realistic about that we use the concept of harm reduction, to make it safer mm-hmm. than it was, it'll never be perfect. Um, and if we expect perfection, then people are probably gaming the system. Right. So to be realistic in that. And then the third thing is that medicine is a team sport. And we often think about the teams, the doctors and nurses, but the team really includes the patients and their families. And that kind of team is really, I think, where the key is to making healthcare safer for everyone, the patients and the clinicians. Absolutely. And, you know, in um, mental health, one of the systems that they're developing for the therapist is to really, when we're working with patients, is to really not say what's wrong with them, but what happened to them. And in faults of medicine, it's almost like that. What happened in the process as a way to learn and creating a, what, um, when we, when, you know, I was working with uh, San Francisco General Hospital, another public health hospital, is really creating a just culture so that people felt comfortable, safe to be able to talk about their errors um, and as a way to protect the physician because we know people are going to be making mistakes, especially with so many dynamic things going on in hospital settings. Um, and um, so I really appreciated the book and pointing that out. Um, and well, I, well, one of the things mm-hmm. that I can just add is that I think there's a unique issue in the United States where we have an especially litigious culture and that we tend to approach rectifying medical errors with malpractice. Right. And with that lens there, well, of course, everyone's terrified to talk about their error. If you so much as apologize to the patient and tell them what happened, you might get sued out of existence, even if it wasn't a deliberate error, which, of course, most errors are not deliberate. And so it causes nurses and doctors to understandably clam up. And I think other countries which use maybe the term just culture is appropriate, other ways of remedying patient harms without having to have doctors and patients fight it out in the court system, which is really not set up for the vast majority of cases. You know, the occasional negligent, truly abhorrent doctor, fine, sue them in court. But most errors are made by absolutely committed clinicians who care about what they do, um, who are devastated to have done some kind of harm to their patient. And, And suing them isn't going to solve anything. It's not going to make the mistake go away or bring someone back. And it's not the, the, the doctor and nurse, they're already punished enough, you know, their own guilt and harm. What I think they want to do, and so do the patients, they want to 
fix it so it won't happen to the next person. And we should really be putting our energy there rather than you know, chasing each other in the legal system. Absolutely. And then as well, it's just reaching out to that family to talk about um, what happened and involving them in that process even before any, any, and especially in poor uh, hospitals that serve poor people who aren't as maybe litigious, um, you know, they really just want an apology or some, you know, semblance of what happened. Um, And engaging with that family, I think, is a really important part of any medical error as well. You know, there was an interesting study a few years ago where they gave patients just uh, scenarios of your doctors made an error. Uh, how likely are you to fire them and get a new doctor? And depending on if the doctor tells you or you find out later. And actually, if the doctor tells the patient about the medical error, they're less likely to fire the doctor because they feel like, oh, I can trust this person. I know they'll be honest with me. And I think for most patients, it's terrifying going to the hospital, being sick, if you're not a doctor or nurse yourself, and even if you are, because you don't know what's going on. And so you're really at the mercy of your medical team. So if someone tells you what went wrong, how, however uncomfortable that might be, you might actually be relieved, okay, now I'm, I'm in good hands because I know that they'll be honest with me. Right. And I think you really emphasize that in your book is, you know, really uh, bringing the family um, into, um, you know, the, the healing process with, with the physician. How else do you think we can improve that healthcare system to empower our patients and families? Well, it depends what level you want to look at it. So some of it is a societal level, right? If we have a culture that, that uses lawsuits as a way to rectify wrongs, then that already sets the stage to be very antagonistic. And other countries, such as Denmark, have other systems more akin to workers' compensation, where if you've had a, a bad outcome, you can just sort of apply and, and make a, file a claim and, and you know get some kind of settlement without having to battle out in court for five or ten years. So that's one bigger level. On the microscopic level, I think things that we can individually do, one thing is just taking the time to listen to, to what the patients and families are, are requesting. If you look at malpractice data, uh, you know, the surgeon operating on the wrong side of the body, that's a very rare malpractice case. More than half, the vast majority of malpractice cases end up uh, resting on an issue of communication, either between the nurses and doctors, between the patients and the doctors, somewhere along the line is the communication part. And, and I think our, our whole system doesn't give a lot of shrift to communication. You can't bill a lot for you know communication, you can bill for procedures. But in fact, most patients just want to know what's going on. So for doctors and nurses to take the time to see what the patients and families are trying to, to get. I mean, most patients sue because they don't have the information. And if we can give them the basics, most people, most patients don't actually want to sue you. They just want to, you know, try to make this as good, as solved as we can and move forward. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I was raised in the free clinic movement where if you needed a half hour with that patient, you know, we had the time to do it. And so it was an incredible uh, read in your book about, you know, in 15 minutes, you've got to figure out everything that's wrong with that patient and what you're going to do about solving their problems. And I find that structure is um, going forward as we go through this pandemic. It's an area that I think we really need to look at in terms of providing the physician a bit more time to kind of do the interaction with their patients, or at least have another person there that kind of picks up where you're leaving as a team approach to really get into the psychosocial needs of that patient and also how they would like to be served. 
Sure. I mean, imagine you brought your car and your car's not working and you expect the mechanic in 15 minutes <laughs> to figure it all out for every kind of car. I mean, exactly. Yet, yet somehow with people, we seem, okay, we'll give that doctor 15 minutes to cover every one of their 10 chronic issues, the psychosocial issues, the medication refills, the forms, and then, then we'll ding the doctor for being, um, for not being, uh, I mean, the productivity quotas because they're not working fast enough. Well, you know, of course, the corners will be cut and things will go wrong. And, you know, some patients will need an hour, some will need 10 minutes, depending on the issue, but we have no flexibility in our system. But you can really, you know, bring that back out again to our society. We've chosen to have our health insurance bill in certain ways. We bill a lot for procedures and not a lot for talking. So doctors who do cognitive work, primary care doctors, pediatricians, there's not a lot, you know, if I sit and talk with my patient about how to take their diabetes or, or heart medications. That's a long conversation. Right. It's reimbursed to my hospital very poorly. But if while I'm talking about how to take your meds or how to cook brown rice, which I do all the time, I simultaneously thread a tube into one of their orifices. And you can pick any orifice you want. The reimbursement goes up like tenfold. So of course hospitals are going to focus on procedures and not spend, you know, waste their time with doctors yakking about broccoli and brown rice because that doesn't pay the keep the lights on. That's right. So our whole system is kind of conspires against the communication and conversation. Now, what's interesting is the book I wrote before this was called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear About Communication. And in some ways, writing the book on medical error was almost the same book because so much of the same, so many of the same issues were at play there. Because I realized, you know, that the the conversation between the patient and their healthcare provider, their doctor, their nurse, is the single most powerful tool we have compared to any other technology. Um, it's flexible. It does a lot, and it's that's our same tool for preventing errors and improving safety. Communication. If I had to pick one tool to put my money on, it would be improving communication. Absolutely, and you know, um, healthcare in total is focused on the most vulnerable populations in our community, and um, in our future, that's going to be a real important part of um, how we uh, serve people in terms of physicians understanding. Uh, the psychosocial needs of their uh, patients. And uh, I was just listening to a study that showed, you know, I think it was 2% of all physicians are African-American. And I know that is the same uh, and low for Latino physicians. And it seems to start at that home, you know, as you talked about um, being, you know, fortunate to be in Canada and kind of having a system that would help uh, individuals to get into healthcare, and the number of people of color that I know that couldn't quite get to that next step of uh, being able to get into uh, medical school. I wonder if you had any thoughts about how we're going to diversify our workforce and our uh, medical uh, system. Well, one thing is we have room for more people. There's a nurse shortage, a doctor shortage, and predicted to be worse as our society ages. So we just need to be opening the doors more because there's no shortage of work to be done. So we can add more medical school classes, more nursing school classes. So for all those people who didn't quite make it in with a limited supply, we just need to open the supply. Uh, the same thing with our residency training programs. There, Those numbers are limited by various congressional funding of these. I think we just have to make it bigger. Uh, we have the pies can be just be bigger and bigger. Yes. So uh, and just, it's just opening the doors more. We certainly, you know, one thing now, you know, people always talk about, oh, those money-grubbing doctors and blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, there are a few. But the, yeah. the people who went into medicine for 
fame and fortune, they have long since they're gone, right? There's much easier ways in life to make a buck than to spend 10 years in training and getting vomit on your shoes, right? You (laughs) could go to, they've all gone to Wall Street. So the people who go into healthcare now, into medicine, into nursing, they're there for the right reasons. And and I, I rarely see a dud amongst the students. What does happen is though our training often dehumanizes them and kind of stamps out their intrinsic good instincts so that's one where, area that we in the academic side need to be careful to preserve the, the native sense of justice and professionalism that nearly every medical and nursing student comes in with. And then we just need to make more seats at the table because there's enough work to go around for a lot more people. And in the future, I think even through this pandemic, we can see that that's even going to be more important. And it really seems to me that we need to reincorporate, re-strengthen our National Health Service core. And, you know, there were so many physicians that came into primary care through that where their loans were help being paid for by working in areas and rural areas. And I know when I ran a pharmacare clinic, you know, we had some of those uh, physicians and it was wonderful to have uh, them. And it was wonderful for them uh, not being, uh, you know, in debt for uh, their next uh, 20 years. So I I think there'd be an excellent turnout. If you look at the number of physicians and and nurses who volunteered during the COVID pandemic, I think they said something like 30,000 people volunteered in New York. That's an enormous number. So it lets you know that people are willing to give and do, even when they didn't get paid or didn't get paid much. If they were given the opportunity and certainly making the, the loans much less burdensome, certainly for medical students, you know, to go into primary care medicine when you have $400,000 in loans, that's a difficult decision to make. And you can see why people choose dermatology. Right. <laughs> so much hours are easier and the pay is better. Why would you want to be a pediatrician? So we can certainly make those changes. And, and that, again, will open the door wider for more people. And so for the listening audience, you know, for general practitioners and primary care physicians, um, you know, in the community side and then specialty care, it, it seems like it's there's a lot of pressure on physicians to kind of, because of that debt issue and, and maybe some of their interests to really push people towards specialties because they really need to make more money versus in the community. It's almost like what we were just talking about, um, how the hospitals kind of, the insurance systems set up ways of how you should be practicing so you can get reimbursed. And I think we should kind of do the same thing in terms of looking at primary care physicians that's just as important as dermatologists. Right. It distorts the system that we reward cardiovascular surgeons more than we reward pediatricians or gynecologists, and they're all equally important. Uh, So I I certainly can understand some people have to train longer, and that should be reflected in their compensation or take up more loans. But, you know, we we make these artificial distinctions, of course, and then there's the prestige alphabet and quotes that comes along with those of the high-paid specialties. And, And not that, again, that people are going in it for the money, but when you're facing an enormous debt, you know, it's hard to then take a low-paying job in an underserved clinic, even if that's where you want to work. If you're going to be so far in debt and not be able to raise your family and afford a home, well, you can see why students would lean toward ways that make their lives easier. Absolutely. And um, I just think that, um, you know, trying to open the doors, as you said, for um, more young people to come through, and especially people of color, to be able to be reflective of their patient care 
um, population um, and also working on the issue of, um, you know, the cost of being able to get into medical school and getting through medical school are some of the areas that I think that we could really improve as we um, hopefully, Dr. Ofri, get into a new political system that's a little bit more supportive of physicians like yourself and patients in our communities to really get the right care. So I, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about COVID-19 and um, as you, I assume you were writing this book and finished the book and then COVID-19 hit. And um, I, I was kind of in the same place where I started this podcast pre-COVID-19 and I had to really incorporate that into my thinking of having the podcast because many of the people I were interviewing are right smack in the middle of serving populations during this pandemic. So I wanted to ask you, how do you see this pandemic? Because I really feel like this is an opportunity for us to really improve our healthcare systems and to support our physicians and all of our mid-level practitioners to uh, really you know, do the best they can in providing care. Um, and right now, you know, not being able to be getting tested in a timely manner, it really puts a lot of uh, pressure on the physicians and the hospitals, but also on the patient to really just do a lot more self-care. I, I think COVID pulled back the curtain on the systemic in, uh, inequities in medicine, which of course are just a reflection of our society. It doesn't exist by itself. We just didn't see it as in such sharp relief as before. But one thing that came from the pandemic is all of a sudden nurses and doctors were given a powerful moral voice that people began seeing them as, quote, heroes. And of course, we all find that term a little uncomfortable because no one feels heroic. We feel like we're doing our job. But on the other hand, you know, society has given us um, a powerful voice uh, in an area of respect. Maybe we didn't have that before, and we should use that voice now to advocate for our patients to show what's happening to our patients who are getting unequal care because of our society, because of racism, because of economic inequality, all of these things because of the rural divide, um, that we should use our voice. We, we have it. We have the attention of society. We have some respect from society now. And Part of advocating for your patients on an individual level is reflected in advocating for them on a global level, on a larger societal level. We shouldn't be afraid to use our voice to speak up, uh, to speak up in unison uh, when we think that, for example, the pandemic isn't being handled, you know, according to the scientific principles of public health. We should speak up because I think that our patients and our society will listen to us and it would be an abdication of our responsibility to stay quiet when we see all of this that's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, as a public health person myself, I just felt like I got into public health knowing that it wasn't it wasn't political. I mean, TB was TB, whether you were coming from Mexico or you were, um, you know, coming from an agricultural community. And now that has totally topsy turvied where, you know, there's just so much um, the creation of so much distrust for our, our our medical services and our physicians. And uh, I really think that, um, you know, it's time for us to really take that back as patient advocates, as health advocates. And uh, I so appreciate, you know, the fact that the physicians are now in a place where they can make the, the needed service. And I've, you know, I read some of your op-ed pieces about how uh, administrators are, you know, that you can count more administrators and count physicians at times. And by the way, those, those are the ones in some of these public, um, or I could say private uh, health systems are making the million dollars a year versus our physicians. And so I do think that there's a real reckoning that we have to have with our insurance companies and our large uh, uh, practicing 
hospitals and our private hospitals um, versus the public hospitals who are really taking the burden of this pandemic. Right. And also where we put our money. If you look since the 1970s, the number of doctors has increased by about 100 percent. It's about doubled. But the number of administrators has gone up by about 3,000 percent. So right now we have a ratio of 10 administrative people per physician. Now, I know there's more paperwork out there with insurance companies. I sympathize with that. But 10 times as much? That's right. So I'm thinking, you know, a few of those salary lines, if we could use them to hire more doctors and nurses, would really serve our our, our patients well. And, and honestly, my my feeling is that everyone in healthcare, no matter where you are, needs to be involved in patient care. So if you're in an administration, you spend one day a week in clinic, a half a day, one week on the wards. If you have an RN or an MD behind your name, you should be doing some patient care. And if you don't, well, then answer the phones at the front desk. I think it would be very instructive for the folks in the C-suite to spend one morning manning the front desk at our clinic. Just see what it's like for a patient to try and, you know, get their appointment and do all those things. Because I think there becomes this growing divide between those who manage the business of healthcare and those who actually do it. Absolutely. I think that would be very helpful. And, you know, um, and coming out of the closet as an administrator of medical services, I can tell you that it, that is so important. And, you know, because I came from the free clinic movement and the community clinic movement, I did answer those phones in the front desk, Dr. Free. And, you know, it is... So uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's very it's, eye-opening. Well, and not only that, but it's so important because as I worked with our administrators and our directors at the hospital, I always reminded them, you know, they come here for five days a year maybe, but they're 360 days in the community. And it's so important for us to understand where they live, how their their life is. Um, and then they show up to your hospital, how they're treated as they come through the front door. Um, and so, and, you know, coming from the San Francisco area with homeless population, very high. And, you know, I can't even say enough about New York times that by a hundred um, you know, our, you know, one, one mm-hmm. of the things I see, I know that hospitals are very concerned about patient satisfaction now, right. which I appreciate. I think is great. You know, well, they, get money for that. Billing. they get money exactly, for that. That's why. <laughs> but the interpretation, oh, let's increase our patient satisfaction scores. Let's get a nice coffee machine in the waiting room <laughs> right. or graham crackers. I'm thinking, no, get more nurses on the staff. That will increase patient satisfaction. Right. Give patients twice as much time with their doctors. That will increase patient satisfaction in a meaningful way. Instead, we do all this window dressing, you know, we'll have valet parking, we'll have the nice coffee, we'll have the fancy elevators, you know, which is nice. We should have a beautiful place to be, but that's the window dressing. And the real satisfaction is more time with their clinicians. Absolutely. And, you know, and I also believe in mid-level practitioners and uh, community health outreach workers and social workers. Um, You know, I worked a lot with the emergency department and trying to, when you look, when you walk into that emergency room, that's a social work conference room, you know, in terms of the needs of each of those patients and how do we kind of touch them before they walk, even walk into that exam room and make sure of their needs, helping you as a physician to do the job that you need to do as well. So I do think this whole mid-level group of individuals, um, even on a volunteer basis, but a little different than the candy stripers, right? I mean, we have to have some people who really understand what's going on in the community. Sure. To really support I, I couldn't people. agree with you more. We, we've actually had in the last few years, a huge change in our chronic disease management, in which we've now included various people, uh, community health workers, health educators, uh, disease coordinators who are of RN backgrounds. And, and one of our, our community um, educators has been so involved. We had an issue, and this is just the other week, in the pandemic, I have a patient who lives very far from the hospital 
who can't come get his medications because the family he's staying with won't let him go out because of the risk of COVID to their baby. Um, so he can't get his medications. And so this healthcare educator volunteered to bring his medications from Bellevue all the way to Washington Heights, which is, you know, an hour plus away. So he wouldn't run out of his diabetes medicines. And and it was an amazing thing to watch because he really cared because he has gotten to know this patient over the years. So it, it, it matters great and small. The team of health educators, the social workers, the nurse practitioners, the PAs, it's been amazing. I mean, 10 years ago, we had none of this. It was just the doctor. You did it all. And now we actually do have a team and the patients have really benefited. Well, that is uh, so important and also so good to hear. So, um, you know, I just really wanted to highlight your book again. Um, and I really think it's important. Just want to plug for your uh, your book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor, Doctor Confronts Medical Error. It's an incredible read. Um, you really can understand. You really get into Dr. Ofri's mind as she's sitting in that exam room trying to figure out how to take care of somebody's entire needs within 15 minutes and how the systems um, uh, and corporate systems many times don't support the physicians to do the healing and the patient's empowerment to uh, really help that uh, physician to uh, help them heal as well. So I thought um, just to give you some um, couple of minutes, Dr. Ofri, if you'd like to offer the listening audience any other comments about your, your book or how you're feeling about the pandemic and maybe your thoughts about the future of healthcare. Oh, Fazla. Well, let me give you one thing a, a little bit different. Uh, we also uh, publish a literary magazine from our hospital called the Bellevue Literary Review. Um, And we publish fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction about health and healing, partly because we realized, and I think COVID really pointed this out, that getting better, that healthcare is much more than just getting the right medication. There's addressing the fears and the vulnerabilities. And often our patient education materials, the top 10 tips for osteoporosis, doesn't quite fill that. And so having a place for medical humanities, for poetry, for art, um, has been really helpful, and especially so now. So I uh, will just put a plug in for the Bellevue Literary Review. You can subscribe, you can read online. Um, And the future of healthcare, that's a big one, but I'm very optimistic, uh, partly because of who the people are in the system. Again, as I mentioned before, I feel the people going to healthcare now are really committed. And COVID showed that, you know, quite clear for the world to see that nobody hesitated. Everyone stepped forward. And and isn't that miraculous? And, And, you know, who we all kind of wish our politicians would take the same kind of step forward without even questioning it, but but we didn't see that. Right. But our our, our medical people did, and, and aren't we fortunate? We just need to back them up a little bit. And the patients stepped forward. I mean, it was really hard for the patients to come forward and, and admit when they felt sick and, and get tested when it felt uncomfortable. And patients really came together, you know, helping each other out. It was incredible to see. So I am optimistic. I think there is a growing public awareness that healthcare is a human right for all of us, and we can't treat it as a business commodity. Yes, there are expenses, and we, you know, you can't divorce money completely, but that should be the second, you know, consideration. But the first one is that everyone deserves the dignity of good healthcare. And I think we're all starting to accept that. And that really uh, gives me a lot of hope for the future. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ofri, and I, it's such a great honor to hear from you today on Healthcare Untold, and thank you for your service every day, and thank you for all that you do um, on behalf of Healthcare Untold. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Please send your likes and comments to our Facebook, Healthcare Untold. We also want to thank Gerardo Sandoval, Dr. G, for his technical and production support. Healthcare Untold will also be supporting local businesses who are transitioning to different modes of sale. Please support them, these businesses, to keep them thriving. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, wear your mask to save your life and those around you. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Healthcare Untold. San Francisco, are you craving some authentic Mexican food? Not to worry. San Jalisco is open for takeout. You know you're craving that burrito macho or the mega vegetarian burrito. Maybe a quesadilla suiza or maybe a tostada, some enchiladas, a chile relleno or some flautas. You know you're craving some authentic Mexican food. From the Mission District, San Jalisco Mexican Restaurant is the destination place for quality, authentic Mexican food. Currently operating for takeout only every Monday through Thursday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Friday to Sunday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more information, you can find them online at anjaliscorestaurant.com or call 415-648-8383. Again, that number is 415-648-8383. Eight three eight three. The Padillas Reyes family thanks you for your support. <laughs> and remember, stay safe. <laughs>